0: I don't think I have to tell you that identity is discussed everywhere in our culture today. There are questions about racial identity, sexual identity, gender identity, wealth identity. These questions really should not surprise us. Mankind has been searching for meaning since the dawn of human civilization. We all have questions Where do you find your identity when a spouse abandons you? When your children don't turn out exactly as you planned? When you retire? Recently, a woman whom I've known most of my life told me her husband retired too soon. And he did so without a biblical view of retirement. He was a very successful businessman, very faithful deacon in the church that I was raised in. Raised good kids. I've actually taught his wonderful grandchildren. But the man is an alcoholic today. And his alcoholism has severed all of his family relationships. His identity was too bound up in his career. And when he retired from his vocation, he also retired from active service in the church. And he soon fell into alcohol addiction. And he's just rarely, rarely sober. It's amazing he's still alive, actually. Now, I have not reached retirement age, but if you have, you need to think biblically about this transition. And the Lord has really provided UBC with great examples, truly great examples of people retiring from their vocations and who just go on and reinvest their energies and their grandchildren and the church In various Christian ministries, we really have some wonderful, wonderful examples. But who are you when there are no more promotions? Your bodily strength and mental acuity begin to ebb away. Do you lose your identity when you downsize your house? Is your identity so bound up in your children that you're terrified of becoming an empty nester? What happens when the houses you build are torn down? The businesses you ran are shuttered. The medical knowledge you learned is now obsolete. The pedagogical methods you practice are now replaced by more technology in the classroom. That happens. And the sermons you preach are not so well received by the next generation. I'm sure that will happen. The world just moves on. And your accomplishments are long forgotten. And young people, this is not just a sermon for those who are retiring. Young people can go through stages of embarrassment because of the homes that they were raised in. My parents are just so unreasonable, so out of date, they think. Young people can really become ashamed of their Christian family identity. They become consumed with status symbols like phones. Got to have a phone. Well, all my friends have a phone, and if I don't, I'm not cool. Teenagers are enormously concerned about what other people think about them. And teenager, if that's you, let me just clue you in. Your friends are not thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves. Now, my purpose today is not to address all these individual questions of identity. My purpose today is to make sure that we can really take the theology of Romans and just apply it when we are confronted with these issues of identity. Can we think in biblical categories? Last week I concluded with a lengthy citation from Albert Camus, the French existentialist. Existentialism is a big philosophical word. With a, but there's a popular form of existentialism that really just, it just pervades our culture. According to existentialism, there is no God who authors our values, who defines our moral norms. Jean Paul Sartre put it famously Existence precedes essence. That's existentialism. Existence precedes essence. That's existentialism in three words. What does that mean? It means this, we first exist and then we define ourselves. Not the other way around. You were not created by God with a specific purpose and plan already in His mind. No, you simply exist by way of millions of years of evolutionary development and now that you exist, go out and define yourself. Go out and create yourself. Go out and discover your own life purpose. Go out and create your own life values and meaning and morality. In the words of the existentialist Soren Kierkegaard, the thing is to find a truth which is true for me. To find the idea for which I can live and, and die. And friends, the Christian worldview puts it exactly the opposite. Essence precedes existence I was known by God even before I existed God created me according to his own plan and purpose God told Jeremiah before I formed you in your mother's womb I knew you our calling is to discover God's purpose for our lives We do so by discovering our giftedness, our capacities, our aptitudes, and then putting those to work for His kingdom. I really should preach a whole sermon on vocation. I might actually do that this summer. I'm not quite sure yet. But discover what abilities God has given to you. and Go out and do it. If He's given you abilities in accounting, well, go become a great accountant. Now, existentialism as a philosophical movement has been relegated to the history text. But popular existentialism just pervades our culture. Our culture says, go discover yourself. Go find yourself. Go be who you want to be. You exist, now go out and create your own values. Create your moral norms. Create your own purposes. And friends, when that philosophy collides with the biblical truth that we are fallen in Adam, the results are catastrophic. The world takes what the Bible calls lust of the flesh and says let your sexuality define you. The world takes what the Bible calls the pride of life and says let your sense of accomplishment define you. Let your work define you. The world affirms your fallen Adamic desires. And the world tells you, just ignore that conscience that the Creator has put within you. Rewrite all of His laws. Be your own person. Friends, the world affirms you. And Jesus Christ comes along and He says, you must be born again. Now last week, I addressed the most important question we have to ask about identity. Identity the most important question is not what does the Bible say about identity, but what does the Bible say about everything? And here are three non-negotiables. First, man was created perfect in the image and likeness of God. Second, man is fallen. Third, man is redeemable through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And it's within the context of these three truths that you have to work out your philosophy of identity. And last week we turned to Romans 5 where Paul argued that ultimately there are two options and only two. You have a fallen identity in Adam or there's a new identity in Christ. There are two humanities, a fallen Adamic humanity and a new identity in Jesus Christ, a new humanity in Jesus Christ. And friends, they're just there simply is not a third option. The Bible does not acknowledge a third option. However, there is a catch. For the present, we don't live fully in Adam or in Christ. We actually live at the intersection between two humanities. And this truth often comes as a rather rude awakening to new believers. They are surprised by the potency of their flesh that remains after conversion. Now our church's passion, as John mentioned a moment ago, is to bring people to Christ and Christ's likeness And bringing the people to Christ is a matter of helping them to discover justification through the work of Christ on the cross. But bringing people to Christ's likeness, that is a discipleship process that takes a lifetime of sanctification through the Spirit and the Word. Sanctification is a process of laboring day in and day out to abandon our old identity in Adam and to put on our new identity in Christ. It's the work of a lifetime. And the most important passage in my estimation that we can turn to is Romans 7. Well, let's actually get a running start at it and turn to Romans 6. Romans 6, and then we'll come to Romans 7. Now back in Romans 5, that's where we were last week, Paul explained our two identities. We have Adam and we have Christ, and there's no other options. Then in Romans 6, Paul argues that we died to sin in Christ, but we are now alive to God through Christ's resurrection. In Romans 6, is a celebration of our union with Christ. This is a theological reality. We are united with Christ. Look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? When did I die? In Christ. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into the Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into the death? you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. These verses are a wonderful celebration of our union with Jesus Christ, both in death and in resurrection. When Jesus died, I died with Him. My whole Adamic nature and the weight of all my sin was taken to His cross and buried in His tomb My enslavement to sin, my flesh, this whole body of sin that I carry around was destroyed, brought to nothing, Paul says. And when Jesus rose again, when his body was raised as the first fruits of the new creation, I was raised up with him. I left the curse behind the grave. Death itself has no dominion over me. I am so organically united with Jesus that it's as if I already died and I've already resurrected. Jesus died so that I could die and he rose so that I could live. And when I was baptized, I symbolized my embracing of these truths. So, friends, Romans 6 really does articulate some wonderful theological realities. But let's talk about experiential reality. I still sin. I still carry around the flesh. And I am certainly not living in a resurrected body. Theologians refer to this tension as the already not yet character of our salvation. How do you like that for double speak? It's not double speak, it's just a reality. It sounds like double speak. We have already had our salvation secured in Christ, but our full experience of that salvation hasn't happened yet. Yes, I died and rose 2,000 years ago, and Paul speaks of salvation as being a past thing, but Paul also speaks about your future salvation. So if you ask somebody, Are you saved? and he says, Well, I will be in the future, that's actually true. Right? It's not just that we were saved in the past, we have to be saved in the future as well, when we're completely de- delivered. My salvation occurred at Calvary, but Paul again uses salvation also in a future tense. And that's because we do not fully experience our resurrection with Christ until we are in fact bodily resurrected. Now you get just a couple of hints of this already not yet truth right here in chapter 6. For instance, when Paul asks in verse 1, are we to continue in sin? The implication is, yes, indeed, we can still sin. That's a real possibility. Or likewise in verse 11, when Paul says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, he implies that we must really take these theological truths and apply them to the present. In the words of verse 4, we need to walk in newness of life. When you become a Christian, you reject your old identity in Adam, and you embrace a new identity in Christ. But frankly, living in the present feels like you're just torn between these two identities. There's a tension that we all feel. And it's that tension now that Paul is going to deal with in Romans 7. Romans 7 speaks of what I call a schizophrenic identity. And Christians are kind of schizophrenic. I mean, we're the only people that are, actually. We have, a, we have these two identities. I, I think you understand what I'm talking about. The Christian life feels like we're being pulled in different directions. Paul uses graphic language in Colossians 3. You have to mortify the deeds of your flesh. You have to just on, keep on killing it, killing it dead. He wouldn't say that unless your flesh was enormously powerful. We have a sin nature that never gets redeemed. It has to be killed all your life long and finally buried in a grave. So friends, the doctrine of Christian sanctification rests on this undeniable theological tension. On the one hand, I am justified by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, but I am not yet made perfect. My salvation is as certain as Jesus' resurrection from the dead, but I still live in an old body that has not been resurrected. And with that in mind, let's begin our work in verse 14. Paul writes, Romans seven fourteen. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Does that describe you? That's a very frank assessment of ourselves. I know I should obey God, but my flesh is weak. And the harder I try, the more I seem to fail. You ever wonder why your flesh is just so potent? Well, does the potency of your flesh mean that you're not even a true believer? Well, wait. Paul says we do the very things that we hate. Unregenerate persons do not hate sin. Augustine said that before he came to Christ, he, just, he loved the idea of ruining himself. But the fact that at a minimum you hate sin, that tells you something's happened in your heart. You may still fall into sin. That is true, we all do. But who is it in you? Who's inside there? It says, "I I really hate this. There's a new man in there that at least has the capacity to hate the flesh." Now I know Christians, and so do you, with a holier-than-thou attitude, and they thrive on condemning and judging and calling into question the salvation of other Christians when they fall into sin. It's like that's 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 their first explanation. Someone falls into sin. Oh, they never were a believer. Well, the irony is those are the people whose salvation I actually question because they're so blinded by their own pride. The Christian is one who recognizes this battle with sin endures for a lifetime. The fact that you fell is not an indication that you're not a believer. If, in fact, you hate the falling, somebody in there is hating that fall. Now, if you persist in it, and don't want to be redeemed at all. Well, that's another story. But the fact that you fell is not an indication that you're no longer a believer. Who in there is really hating that sin? That's the new man. That's not the old man. Now, Paul continues in verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Paul's saying, if I at least agree that I don't want to do these unlawful things, and I'm at least acknowledging the law is good, I'm agreeing with God, and that's a start. There's some new identity inside of me that has begun to acknowledge God's command, and at least wants to do His will. Even when I fail, somebody in there wants to do right. And so verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And there's Paul sounding all schizophrenic. But examine your heart. Do you feel like there's two identities in there pulling in different directions? It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Like there's an I and there's a me and there are two different people. And I think the curious truth of this passage is that it indicates that that, that believers, not unbelievers ironically, are the ones who are truly conflicted over their identity. Isn't that interesting? We are the ones that are really conflicted over all this because we're pulled in two different directions. Believers live somewhere between Adam and Christ. The unregenerate heart simply says, I'm just going to go out and I'm going to affirm my natural identity. I'm going to go be who I am. The existentialist says, Go out and define yourself, create your own values, create your own morality, but the believer says, I don't want to be who I am. When someone is deeply conflicted over his or her identity, I take it to be a sign of spiritual regeneration. I've talked with many, many students through the years who are deeply conflicted about their sin natures, and they almost always assume they are not believers. I mean, 99% of the time, they have all this conflict about their sin nature, and they come into the office, and they say, you know, I'm not even a believer. And I almost always assume they are. And they look at me kind of shocked, like, you think I'm a believer? I'm like, yes, I think you're a believer. Now, I don't want to give them false sense of security. Don't misunderstand. But it's believers who come to know by experience this tension between the two humanities, And when they're sitting there just struggling with us, I'm saying, well, who in there hates your sin? I guess somebody in there does. Well, where'd that somebody come from? Uh, Ah, oh. You see, there's an old Brent Cook who was born in sin. There's a new Brent Cook who inherits the new world and a new body. But what I experience right now is these overlapping spheres. I live at the intersection between two worlds. Now, Paul further describes this old me in verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Notice how Paul makes a concrete assertion and then a clarification. Nothing good dwells in me. Oh, but wait, I mean in my flesh as if there's two Pauls. Now there is indeed something good in you if you are regenerated. But in this context, Paul is using the term flesh as a synonym for that unredeemable part of you. Notice that again. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. There's nothing good in my flesh. That flesh is that part of you that just never gets redeemed. And even when I want to do what's right, there's nothing in my flesh that's going to make that happen. Look at verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Ever feel that way? That's because your flesh does not get redeemed. It just wants to keep on doing evil. Now, which sin do you engage in more than any other? And do you feel like there's just this old identity in there that just keeps going back to that sin? Why do we just keep on sinning? Well, look at verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Again, doesn't Paul sound schizophrenic? I hate to keep using this term, but isn't that exactly what we're... Seeing here, I, if I do what I do not want, notice the I, I, I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it. What's going on here? There's, there's two Pauls. There's two identities that are just raging on the inside. I don't want to sin, I really don't. So, what's the problem? Well, sin is just bound up in my flesh sin defines me it's corporate in me then again who is it that's so angry at sin who inside is screaming i don't want to do this even while you're doing it there's new life in there somewhere augustine tells us before he was converted there was no voice on the inside who hated sin he just loved sin But after his conversion, he discovered someone on the inside who began just expressing opposition. Someone who was just putting a wall up and saying, don't cross this barrier. Friends, Romans 7 reads, as a great lamentation that I'm not who I'm supposed to be. But that voice that becomes so frustrated with sin, that's the regenerate new believer speaking out in you. Unregenerate people don't get angry at sin. They delight in it. They affirm their sin. They want you to affirm their lust. They affirm their Adamic identity. But the I who despises his flesh must be a regenerate person since only regenerate persons can truly hate sin, regardless of whether they sin or not. Only regenerate persons can truly hate sin. Now, through the remainder of the chapter, Paul speaks to this double identity that we all feel, this two persons reality. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members... Another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from this body of death? And I wonder how often we come to the communion table feeling exactly like this. I'm a new man. I really want to do what's right. My desires changed when I came to Christ. Desires deep down in my inner being. Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of the Second Great Awakening, tells us that at conversion, God changes our affections. That's how you know you're born again. God changes your affections. But the minute I set out to do what's right, there is an inevitable problem. Evil just slinks right up alongside my new affections. And even while doing what is right, temptation towards sin is all around, and it just just pulls at my flesh. Nevertheless, verse 22 tells us that a regenerate person has experienced an internal change. Paul acknowledges that this inner being suddenly delights in God's law. That's not normal, but that's the heart of the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, the prophet told us God was going to give us a new covenant. And it wasn't like that Mosaic covenant etched in stone that hung on an external wall. The new covenant, Jeremiah says, will be written by the finger of God on your heart. Then in Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount, we heard Jesus just taking the law and internalizing it into human hearts. You've always heard that you can't commit adultery or murder. But I say unto you, your heart has to be pure. You can't even lust. You can't even hate. Blessed with a pure in heart. Well, how does that happen? There's got to be a whole new man. In fact, you've, you've just got to be born again. Because your flesh isn't going to be born again. And then in Hebrews 8, The author told us that Jesus is indeed the minister of the new covenant. Jesus changes our hearts. Jesus changes our inner man. The new covenant is precisely what Paul is speaking of in verse 22. Paul knows a change has happened in his inner being. Paul knows that God is writing the law on his heart. Now, you may be sitting there just doubting your salvation because you've experienced temptation all week long. And here's what happened. You gave in. And part of you wants to affirm your old identity in Adam. Your heart has been changed, but your flesh pulls like a magnet towards sin. Well, let me just encourage you with this. You are not alone. In fact... Everyone in this room who is a believer is in this together. And read again Paul's description of the person himself who has experienced a change of heart in the inner man. Verse 23 But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. Friends, that experience that you have right now of being plagued because you fell into sin. Guess what? Paul had the same experience. Wretched man that I am. I want to do what's right, but there's a war on. And my lust overwhelm me. Who will deliver me from this body of death, Paul says. The Christian can feel incredible desires, This is really the case in the area of sexuality. The lust, the burning desires in your body, the appetites, the temptation of the eye gate, the idle thoughts of the mind, it's all there. And it doesn't just go away when you're born again. The law of sin is alive in your flesh. And if the Apostle Paul can lament, wretched man that I am, you would be naive to think you'd never have that experience. Paul felt like he was dragging around a dead body everywhere he went. He was chained to a corpse. You do not lose the old man in this lifetime. The old man does not get sanctified. The old man is as dead to God today as the day you first believed. Your flesh, this wretched man, friends, again, is the irredeemable, unredeemable part of you. You have to kill it. You have to mortify it. Don't give it a ten-year sentence. Don't parole it. Don't release it on bail. Kill it and kill it dead. But don't forget, the battle lasts a lifetime. But again, what is it that distinguishes you or Paul from an unbeliever? It's simply this. You have a new identity in there that cries out, wretched man that I am. That is not the cry of an unbeliever. That is the cry of somebody who hates his Adamic nature. The unbeliever is one-dimensional. His flesh loves sin. He goes about affirming his Adamic nature the believer is two dimensional his flesh and his blood his flesh does not it does indeed love sin but there's a voice of rebellion against his flesh that is frankly supernatural so again who cries out who will deliver me from this body of death who is crying that that's the new man that is the cry of someone who is experiencing the finger of god writing his law in his heart. And is there a deliverer? We'll look at verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now friends, where does this leave us? We've got two options. We can live out our old identity in Adam or we can claim our new identity in Christ. Paul has explained the problem. We get it. There's a war on the inside and my flesh is the problem. And secondly, Paul has identified the solution. Jesus Christ, our Lord, he delivers us from sin. But let's just conclude by talking about reality. I put my faith in Jesus. I know that he's forgiven my sin. And I know that I'm going to live with him forever. But between now and forever, what am I supposed to do with this old flesh? Romans 7 is a desperate cry for help. But if you're looking at an ESV, would you notice the chapter heading over chapter 8? The chapter heading reads Life in the Spirit. There's a progression to Paul's argument through Romans Life in the Spirit. How many times do you suppose Paul has mentioned the Holy Spirit in Romans 1 through 7? He's mentioned the Holy Spirit in the first seven chapters four times. That's it. Four times, seven chapters. One of those four is found in Romans 7 and verse 6, where Paul refers to newness of the Spirit. Well, what is that? Because Romans 7 doesn't sound like newness of the Spirit. That sounds like a battle with the flesh. Well, how many times does the Holy Spirit appear in Romans 8? One chapter. Twenty times. Four times in the first seven chapters. Twenty times in one chapter. Does that tell you something? Romans 5, 6, and 7 are driving us just furiously to the Spirit. Romans 8, the Christian life must be lived out under the control and power of the Holy Spirit or it will succumb to the flesh. Romans 5 again says you've got two identities, you've got Christ and you've got Adam. However, if I embrace Christ, Romans 6 and 7 indicate there's an already not yet dimension to my salvation and I live at the intersection between Adam and Christ. How then do I navigate this already not yet complexity? Answer Romans 8. What I need is new life in the Spirit. Friends, at the moment of your salvation, the same Spirit who came on Christ at His baptism, and the same Spirit who sustained Christ through burning temptation in the wilderness, That same Spirit that sustained Him all the way through to the cross. Think of it, that same Spirit is given to you. Romans 8. Now, of course, there was no possibility that Christ could have sinned. Jesus did not submit Himself to John's baptism of repentance because He was a sinner. Jesus was simply repenting on our behalf because we cannot even repent like we should. Think of it. Christ even repented on our behalf. And, friends, there was no possibility whatsoever that Jesus would ever succumb to satanic temptation. It wasn't like without the Spirit he would ascend. Don't misunderstand. What's happening here is Jesus is modeling for us what salvation looks like. When we repent of our sins, we are justified. Romans 4. Our sins are nailed to Christ's cross and we have a perfect standing in God's sight. And Jesus numbered Himself with transgressors. And submitted to a baptism of repentance. Because again, we can't even repent like we should. And Jesus came up out of the waters of baptism and the Spirit came on him. Now by the way, the Spirit was there at birth also. But again, what Jesus is doing here is modeling for us what the new life is supposed to look like. And at the moment of salvation, when we have repented and we have been justified, that Spirit comes on us. Now, what follows repentance and justification? Well, what followed Jesus' baptism? He goes right out into the wilderness. And the Spirit, by the way, led Him there. And there He experienced enormous temptation through 40 days of starvation. Now, here's what's going to happen. You put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you know what happens the very next day? Temptation. And the day after? temptation and the day after temptation all the way through to the end of your life well how did jesus respond what does new life in the spirit look like you know how jesus responded when he was full of the spirit the word he responded to every temptation with the word What Jesus was doing is modeling for us what sanctification in the midst of temptation actually looks like. It looks like this. The Spirit and the Word. The Spirit and the Word. Jesus succeeded in the wilderness because He was full of the Spirit. And He responded with the Word. So come back to our question of identity. How do you explain a believer who served the Lord in the church And in his vocation for decades, and he retired and became an alcoholic. Paul and Ephesians literally contrast being filled with the Spirit with being drunk with wine. When your identity is bound up in your career or anything else and you lose it, where do you turn? Can you just go right on living in the Spirit? That's your greater vocation. Can you just go right on living in the Spirit? Or do you turn to addiction? What you need is the Spirit and the Word. Are you going to find your identity in the lust of your flesh? Will you let the flesh define your identity or are you going to live out your new identity in Christ that requires the Spirit and the Word? Are you going to go out and discover yourself as the existentialist says? Or are you going to define your own values and purposes as the world tells us to do? Or on the other hand, are we going to allow the Holy Spirit... To take our God given capacities and aptitudes and talents and just use them under the Spirit's control as we are guided daily by the Word. Friends, we live at the intersection between two worlds. And we have a choice. Are we going to pursue our old identity in Adam? Or are we going to embrace the reality of Spirit indwelling? And pursue our new identity in Christ through the Word. These are your options. You don't have other options. So if indeed we are going to pursue our church's passion of bringing people to Christ and Christ's likeness we've got to realize that bringing people to Christ for justification is just the beginning. Bringing people to Christ's likeness including ourselves, is a lifelong pursuit through the Spirit and the Word. Shall we pray? Father, I pray that we would submit to the Spirit, and I pray, Lord, that that Spirit would open up our eyes to the truths of Your Word, and that, Lord, as Jesus in the wilderness did, we would hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we would desire it more than the desires of our flesh. We pray for true victory for our people. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.